0: awesome, thank you all, choir. And uh, hey, first of all, I wanna go on record and say not only welcome, but whoever is responsible for the Father's Day fashion distribution email that didn't tell me about the short sleeve pastel shirts. <laughs> what's up with that? Um, but uh, no, fathers and everybody, you look good, it's great to see you and uh, happy Father's Day if I've not already said so. Um, It is uh, good to see your wonderful faces, and thank you for prioritizing worship and the gathering of God's people uh, around his word this morning. As you know, one of our commitments is to uh, make Father's Day one of the fastest growing and most popular Sundays on the Christian calendar. (laughs) Only second to Easter. Right now, we're still in third place behind Mother's Day as well as Easter, and of course, we're behind Christmas whenever it does choose to fall on a Sunday um but nevertheless let's uh let's go before the lord and ask for his help as we get ready uh to preach this morning um, father in the name of jesus uh, how sweet a sound it is for us to be able to call you father my heart is often intrigued by the fact that of all the ways in which you could reveal yourself you had no restraints you had no outside entity There was no council, no board who voted and said that the Almighty should call himself this. You chose by your own own proclivities to call yourself Father to those of us who know you, who place faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord God, I'm I'm intrigued by it, I'm thankful for it, and our hearts are overwhelmed by it, that you would allow us to know you, not just as the Creator, which is mighty indeed, but to know you as Father. Thank you for that love that is exemplified in the sending of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that is constantly echoing in our hearts through the ministry of your Holy Spirit that testifies that we are indeed your children. Thank you for that. May we, this morning, as we explore your scriptures, learn from you, what it means to be a father, and how all of us might respond to you more worshipfully and might more responsibly, Lord God, walk out that role to whom you have given that assignment here in the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Again. Well, hey, listen, it's Father's Day, and if you're sitting here saying, well, hey, I'm not a father, so this message is obviously not for me. No, you couldn't be. that couldn't be further from the truth. Listen, every time you pick up your Bible, I want you to recognize that you may not be, or you are not the first audience to whom that text was written, but you are part of God's featured audience. He absolutely wants to speak to your heart. And while we're talking about the topic of fathers as our first order of business, every one of us in this room is part of the featured audience. I want to speak to you as well. If you're here today and maybe you are not a father by biological definition, I do want you to understand that all of us are called to be fathers by way of the theological definition. We received an original assignment to be fruitful and multiply, to multiply the image of God in the earth. And one of the foremost ways that we multiply the image of God in the earth is through intentional disciple making. Because we are called to do more than to merely be biologically multiply or to reproduce, but we are to reproduce the, the image and glory of God in the earth. And so I believe that there is something in today's message for every single one of us. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn with me in them to the book of Proverbs. We visited this uh, place already in prayer, but we're going to go here again for our primary text. Go to to the book of Proverbs. Navigate your way over to chapter 13, and specifically verse 22 is where we'll start our conversation. The word says, quite simply, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Why would Solomon write these words? In life, almost everything of great value or of any value for that matter has a means, it has a a way for us to determine what that value is. If you're talking about the value of a car, there are some criteria that we look for. How fuel effective is it? How rare is it? Uh, How fast is it? What colors does it come in? How many, what is its capacity? How many people can it seat? What are its capabilities? Can it climb hills? Can it navigate well in snow? We have criteria for determining the value of almost everything in our society. If you're talking about a home, how do we determine its value? We look at its capacity. We look at the number of rooms that it has. We look at its square footage. We look at where it sits, where it's located. In some places, who lives next door to it? If you live in like a celebrity-laden land, right? So we have all kinds of ways of looking at it. What were the, what were the sales of previous um, uh, homes or properties with, with like size and amenities in a given area? We have ways of determining the value of almost everything. If you were to uh, go and shop for a diamond, you've got the big four C's, right? What is its color, right? What is its cut? Is it, is it symmetrical? Uh, what about its clarity? How does it, how does it manage and handle light? right? And of course, its weight. What is its carrot size? We have ways to to slice and dice and to, to determine the value of almost everything in life. And I believe that today's text is no different. It says that a good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children, but the sinner is not so. His wealth is laid up for the Righteous, I believe that in today's text, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey together to determine exactly what it means to leave an inheritance of great value. What is that value? What are some of the criteria that we should be looking for in a valuable inheritance that is handed down by the supposed good man in the text? And I believe that this is also kind of the push of today's message and text, and that is fathers should hand down an inheritance of the highest possible values. Fathers, we should be handing down an inheritance. We should pass down an inheritance of the highest possible value and quality. Now, for a moment, you may be saying to yourself, well, Pastor Rod, you haven't seen my bank statement. You don't know what I do for a living. You don't know how I grew up. You don't know, uh, you haven't seen my W-2. You haven't seen my taxes. You have no idea how far off the mark I am. No, I'm not talking about your W-2, your bank statements, or your last tax returns, because I believe that there is another set of qualities that we can look at to determine the value of the inheritance that we should all be passing down into the lives of other people when we take a look at these for the function of the purpose of our uh, our note takers I'll give you all four of them three of them are extremely obvious and one of them is somewhat obscure but that's the bonus round that we get to at the end of the message when I reach my fourth close So the first of them is this, I believe that the, uh, a, certain quality, uh, a certain quality inheritance will have a moral element to it. Do we have that on the screen? I believe that there is a moral element to uh, a father's great inheritance that he would hand down. A second feature is that it should be multi-generational in its impact and nature. A third is yes, monetary. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But the fourth is one that is somewhat obscure, and you're going to have to bear with me as I unpack that for you when we get there. But it should also be matrimonial. Matrimonial. That's right. I love the chuckles. It's got to be alliterated or else you won't remember it. Well, as we begin to unpack these, I want you to take in consideration who gave us the book of Proverbs and why it's so powerful and why it's so valuable. Proverbs, this one in particular, is written by Solomon, noted as by the scriptures as the wisest man that ever lived. Interestingly enough, while Solomon was a man of great wisdom, he was preceded by his own father, David, who was a man who was a great worshiper. We go to the Psalms to learn about the heart of great worship, but we go to the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes to learn about great wisdom. It was very interesting that Solomon got this inheritance of wisdom, but, but he, he got a heart from his father to go after God in a, in a, in a hard way. And so, so when Solomon was 20 years old, he gets promoted into this incredible role of being the leader and the king over God's people just at the age of 20. And he goes before the Lord in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 11, and he says, Lord, I don't even know how to come in and go out. I have no clue what I'm doing. This assignment is way above my pay grade, my capacity. All I want you to do is to give me wisdom so I can know how to do this. And God responds and says, because you have asked for wisdom and not for wealth, not for the heads of your enemies, not for possessions, you have not asked for for anything of that nature. only going to give you the wisdom you've asked for but i'm also going to give you wealth untold riches so then solomon becomes not only the wisest man that ever lived amongst all of the kings but he also becomes the wealthiest god answers his prayer in spades and so here we are benefiting from a man who asked god for wisdom above all things and god gave him this so i think he's credible we can listen to what god would say through him concerning what a good man does, and I believe that fathers in particular. So let's take on our text and let's see exactly what it means to be a father who passes down an inheritance of highest value. Reading it again, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. One of the first things I want you to know is that whatever this is being handed down, it is moral in its nature. It is moral, it's a moral hand-me-down. The inheritance has a moral capacity because a a good man is contrasted with a sinner later in the same verse that says that his wealth is then laid up for the righteous. So it's good man versus sinner. It's not not a good man according to the secular definition, one who just has his balance sheet together or who is just about his business and has, you know, built multiple homes or has achieved a lot and and risen up the ladder. Notice that it's a good man versus a sinner. So this is a certain call into into character. I believe that the, 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 the call of fathers is to leave a legacy that provides clarity on what good actually looks like. I believe one of the first features of a great high quality inheritance is that we hand down to those who are looking at our lives and who are recipients of what we have to offer a legacy that provides clarity on what good actually looks like. The Bible has much to say about this in Psalm 1, right? We know the, the, the opening words. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree that is planted by streams of water, and, his, and he yields fruit in his season. His leaf does not wither, and in all that he does, he prospers. And here comes a contrast, verse 4, but the wicked are not so. This is what good looks like one of the first aspects of what good looks like this moral dimension that should be a part of our hand down is this the good life is a planted life the good life is a planted life a life that is planted in a place where god causes growth in its season the good life is a planted life notice that this has nothing to do with cash it has nothing to do with quantity it has everything to do with character and commitment so I hope at the first reading of this text, if you felt like you were somewhat disqualified, you are now feeling, by God's grace, re-qualified. Because the good life, the moral thing that we need to hand down is a life that is planted. But there's more. If we go back and we learn from the person from whom Solomon would have gotten his inheritance, who is David, who wrote the Psalms, or this one in particular, Psalm 23. We all know it. We, we, we know the, 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 the Psalm of the, of the, of the, of the Lord's shepherd, But here's verse 6 that I really want us to focus on. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. Well, how did he get there? Because not only is the good life or clarity on what is good, it is not only is it a planted life, but it is a yielded life. You see, the sheep that follows the shepherd is constantly yielded to him in every space and category of life, whether it's how I need to be provided for, how I need to be led, how I I need to be fed, how I need to be protected, whether there's dangers all around. The the person's life that is depicted in Psalm 23 is a yielded life. And so the, the, the moral legacy that I'm handing down is one that shows my children and my children's children what it looks like to be planted and what it looks like to be yielded. But there's another one, Psalm 69. Verse eighteen says, "You know what? Praise the Lord who loadeth us, who loadeth us daily with blessings." You know what else is a good life? One that's not only planted and yielded, but one that is loaded. One that is loaded. I don't know if anybody here has ever worked in a warehouse setting or not, but uh, whenever freight comes off of a truck or, or uh, uh, into a warehouse or any other uh, facility there is something that follows that shipment and it's called a manifest. Anybody know what I'm talking about? A manifest. Now manifest, you thought it was just a religious word. No, it's a a logistics word. The manifest reveals in description and detail everything that got loaded out of that truck into that facility. I believe that the life of a father, of a man that has properly lived and gives a real real righteous hand-me-down to anyone that follows him is a loaded life that regularly manifests in detail. This is what God has delivered into my life and into this family. And I want you to see it by way of description and quality and quantity and weight. I want you to understand what God is doing in us and around us. That is so important that we do not allow those around us to just generically look at the Christian life and say, man, you're lucky, man, you're blessed. No, show them the manifest. This is what God has done. This is how he delivered. This is what he drop shipped. This is what he brought. And here's how much of it he did. And this is the date that it came through. Amen. Amen. We got, we got just a couple of people that have worked in a warehouse here today. <laughs> As a matter of fact, next time you go to Walmart, raise some eyebrows and someone tell you that they don't have anything else left of the item that you want and say, may I see the shipping manifest? <laughs> but the first feature of a great inheritance is that it is a moral legacy comes from a good man. So the goodness of the man who leaves the legacy or the inheritance is translated into the thing that he hands down. But hear me carefully. Your life does not have to be perfect to serve against, to serve as a surface against which God would project his goodness, grace, and mercy. Man, if I'm, as I stand here and I talk about these different principles of the the moral hand-me-down, you may be saying, well, Pastor Rod, that can never be me. I just not lived up to that listen if you've ever seen a quality projector which God is a quality projector he is the one who shows the picture if the projector is of the highest quality it doesn't matter how cracked wrinkly or stained the surface against which he's projecting is and so men I don't care how much you feel like you failed or how much you feel like you've missed it or how cracked how wrinkly how outdated you are listen I don't care what kind of surface you think you are. You cannot stop how well God can project something against your life. A good man leaves an inheritance to his who? His children's children. So not only is it a moral legacy, but we are also called to leave a multi-generational legacy. Leave a legacy that has impact beyond our immediate family. This is not a nuanced call of scripture. Ever since the Ten Commandments, we can see quite clearly God has been interested in multi generational ministry. As early as the Garden of Eden, we knew God was involved in multi-generational ministry because he told them to be fruitful and multiply. But then you fast forward to the Ten Commandments and you see these kinds of conversations in Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. He warns against following uh, carved items and idols because he will visit, he will visit the burden of that sin on multiple generations, but he'll also visit the blessing on a thousand generations to follow for those that would honor him. But then the Bible goes forward even in Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 and tells us how we need to honor our father and our mother because this is the first commandment we're promised so that our days might be long in the land where we are. God is interested in multi-generational impact. As fathers, I believe that we must be vigilant in both fighting for and against these two things in our lives, fighting against the idols that so regularly creep in and fighting for honor being delivered where honor is due so that it might be well with those who are following our lead in the land that God has given them. Take stock in what it is that you are prizing in life because these things are your idols. Idols are not merely tiny carved figurines to which we bow and pray. Idols can be anything and will be anything that occupies in our lives spaces that ought to be committed to and, and, and given to God and God exclusively. And trust me, if we have idols in our lives, they become a part of our inheritance that we hand to others whether you like it or not. Therefore, we must be vigilant to fight the natural idols. Every single man, every single woman, every single child in this room has natural idols, natural areas where we are prioritizing something above God. And it is a continuous fight to put that thing in its place so we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Idolatry is not an ancient Near Eastern infection. It is a very modern contemporary infection. And so we must be constantly vigilantly on the fight to find out what our family idols are and what our individual idols are and put them in their place so that they do not become a part of the things that we hand down to subsequent generations. But at the same time, we must also not only fight our idols, but also find out what are the things in this family that we honor. And so that we hand those down as well. You see, whatever you prize in this life, make sure you pass it down. And listen, you're already doing that. If there's anything in this life that you prize, we're always prepared to hand it down. Whether it's a, an old bat, a, a, a souvenir that you collected, maybe something that you got from your father or your mother. We, anything that we prize in our lives, we're always poised to hand it down. I would say, knowing that you're always handing down what you prize, make sure that you're prizing things that are worth handing down. The Bible invites us into this conversation to, uh, when it comes to hand-me-downs to so multiple generations, right? And the things that you have heard of me among many witnesses, the same, teach or commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. God has always been in multi-generational ministry. And the, the one thing that's talked about being prized there by Paul, handed down to Timothy in hopes that he would hand it down to others. He did it because we ended up getting it. This was his prize, the gospel. But the Bible goes further. It tells us when it comes to things that we're doing and the things that we're, that we're building with, the things that we prize in life, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. Look at that. On the day, it will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work one has, uh, anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Listen, all of our works will be tested. We want to make sure that they're fireproof. And we're already doing this in life. If any of you own a safe or have some uh, safe deposit box down at a bank somewhere, what's in that box? Huh? It's not baby shoes. It's not your lunch from last week. What did you put in a fireproof box? Things that you hope will last and can stand the test of time that you want to make sure that no external elements cause them to, to, dis, to disintegrate or to go away. This is what we put in fireproof boxes and safes. And so I'm asking you to look at the things that you prize in life and, this, and make sure that it is indeed fireproof not just against regular fire, but against redemptive fire. If God were to test the very thing that you're handing down to your children, will it stand under his scrutiny? What are we handing down? Is it truly moral? Is it truly multi-generational in its nature? Is it really worth handing down? A good man leaves an inheritance to his who? children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Solomon, richest man ever lived. Certainly we don't have to skirt around the word wealth in this text and try to make it something other than money. We don't have to pretend as if being super spiritual means that we don't talk about money. Listen, if you are gospel centered as a believer it is going to govern every single thing in your life. It's gonna make you a a, a more of a dependent child. It's gonna cause you to be a a responsible sibling. It's gonna make you an intentional disciple maker. It's gonna make you a generous steward and it's gonna make you a servant leader. If you're gospel-centered, the gospel courses throughout everything that we do in life. So we don't have to try to separate the conversation of wealth from the conversation of our worship. The Lord wants to speak to our wealth. He wants to speak to to what we do from a monetary perspective. And so we should leave a monetary legacy. We should leave a legacy that removes obstacles and creates opportunities in people's lives from a monetary perspective. We ought to. I don't care how, it's, how sizable it is, but we ought to be living with responsible levels of stewardship so that we hand to our families are not nooses of debt, but opportunities for them to be of greater utility to the kingdom of God. Notice how the scripture says that the wealth of the, of the unrighteous is laid up for the righteous. Why is God transferring this wealth? Does he just want to make the, the, the righteous look cute and to buy new clothes? No, there's something that God wants to be done. And what do we know, how do we know this? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. The Bible goes further. That's, the, that's one side of what the Bible says. Let's look at the other side. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. This uh, is the point. The point is... Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Everyone must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The game plan of God is that he generates wealth to motivate generosity to facilitate his work. God generates wealth to motivate generosity in order to facilitate his work. We want to leave behind a legacy and an inheritance that causes our families to see, wow, this guy really valued God's work. How do we take what he has given us and not just buy homes, cars, and fancy loafers, but how do we move the gospel? To not steward well our finances, to not steward them well does not remove obstacles or create opportunity for our families to serve God in a more robust way. It actually creates idols and issues when we don't think about the fact that there's going to be a day that we won't be here And we need to make sure that whatever documentation or whatever vehicles are necessary to preempt our families from falling into idolatry and infighting, that is an expression of our stewardship, to manage your stuff well. Yo, That's Y-O with an apostrophe, removing the the U-R. Manage these things well, steward them, because even that economic stewardship has kingdom value. It is a part of your work of discipleship to make sure that subsequent generations have obstacles removed and create opportunity. And the Bible never compels us to do more than what we actually can in his strength. If you're hearing these words, you, you, you may be the kind of person that's so broke, you would never refer to what you have as wealth. You just refer to it as, you know, my stuff. No, it's wealth. It was given to you by God, whether you think you are wealthy or not. Manage it well and steward it righteously. So here we come. Not only should this legacy that we hand down be moral, multi-generational, and monetary in its quality, but it also needs to be matrimonial. What? I've talked much about the wisdom of Solomon, but if you know anything about his life, not only was he the wisest man that ever lived and the wealthiest man that ever lived, but he was the most, the most wifed man that ever lived. <laughs> 700 wives, 300 concubines. I don't believe that Solomon had an insatiable sexual appetite, but I do believe that's part of Solomon's wisdom when disassociated from proper worship was a belief that if he could create covenantal relationships through marriages with other lands that he could keep peace. Marriages in monarchical societies were often strategic in order to, again, keep them out of military conflicts because if that person had married into one of the families, well, wait a minute, they're part of us. There's no reason for us to fight against them. Solomon, one of the most wifed up men that you'll ever meet, actually allowed his matrimonial status to become a massive obstacle in his relationship with God. If you know anything about Solomon's downfall, it was because one of the 700 wives, or the the wives that he married, led him into idolatry. Of all his great wisdom and wealth, it was undermined by a low-quality worship. In other words, he did not safeguard the heart and the inheritance that he got from his father, David, who was a worshiper par excellence. And so, in everything that we hand down, I think we can clearly see that there is an opportunity that we can all drift if we marry ourselves to the wrong things. The, the, the matrimonial hand me down, what I'm saying is when our families look at our lives, what would they say we are married to? What would they say that we are covenantally connected to? what would they say is the main thing in our lives to which we have given our hearts holistically? Because whatever you are married to will either carry you or it will become an encumbrance to you. And so when we get ready to hand things down, what do our families see? Solomon's great wisdom became his greatest weakness when he was no longer married to great worship. All of that mojo, all of this essence that we get from Scripture, Song of Solomon, Book of Ecclesiastes, uh, Proverbs, all that did we get mangled to a degree, not even fully functional in his own life because his worship went awry. He was married to the wrong things. The New Testament speaks to this. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I beseech you, uh, 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 brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, That you you don't be conformed to the world, but you present yourself as, as a living sacrifice so that in giving your life in this way, you prove what the will of God is. We want our inheritance that we hand down to our next generation and the subsequent generation to continuously prove what was the will of God. This is what we want to do in the things that we hand down. While it is that Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, the Bible refers to actually Jesus as being our wisdom, because he is the one who typifies what we ought to be married to. He is married to the bride of Christ. He is the one who typifies what it means to hand to people something of the highest value. He gives his own life. He is the one who hands down multi-generationally a legacy that is beyond immediate impact. He is the one who typifies the great inheritance that, that, that Solomon is only peeping into when we look at Proverbs chapter 13, verse 22. It is Jesus who has become our wisdom. Wisdom has become a person, not just a possession or a philosophy that gets handed down glory be to God that in the gospel every single person man woman child father or not has access to the great wisdom of God we have access to that wisdom in a person and so no matter how much you have as a possession to hand down if you have Christ you can hand him if you have Christ you can hand him so I just want to say this morning, I don't know how many of you, whether you're a father or not, man, if you find yourself reeling after this message, you're saying, man, I feel completely and totally insufficient. That's okay. You don't need to feel sufficient. As men, we have been sold the false bill of goods that we need to be self-sufficient, but we actually need to be God dependent so that in our weakness, we experience His great strength. And so my appeal is as follows. If you are a person, prayer team, is you're moving to your respective spaces. And if you're a person who has been living life in your own strength, living life on the basis of your own wealth, your own wisdom, and you're just fretting about what you could possibly hand down or how much you can accumulate, I just want to beg you, fight off that idol and focus on the one thing that is of ultimate wisdom and wealth that can, can work in your life and be handed down into, into lives after you. Focus on developing a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not know Jesus, or if you're saying, Lord, I don't know where I stand in my relationship with you. Or if you're saying, Lord, I wanna fight idols and I wanna find great honor. I wanna hand down something that really matters to multiple generations. If that's your prayer and, and, and you want somebody to pray with you, there's people standing at the back that are waiting for you. And we'll pray for you even while we worship, but, but we want our hearts to be won by the Lord to know that he is that thing of greatest wealth, and he is the one of great wisdom that we should all want and hand down to our children's children. You, don't, you can't work for it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to be in a great position. You don't even have to have a trust fund. But will you place your trust in Christ? prayer team's waiting for you. If this, if one of these resonates with you, let's worship him.